And all of us are putting our heads together throughout the week to decide, okay, what is the issue that matters by the time we get to Sunday and that matters for the country beyond that? And then within that issue, what do we need to know? Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Margaret Brennan, the moderator of storied Sunday show, Face the Nation, and CBS News chief foreign affairs correspondent. I spoke as Margaret rings in four years of moderating Face the Nation, the 67-year-old show that is currently the most watched Sunday public affairs program. Moments after our interview, Margaret had to dash off to a briefing with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who she had just interviewed last Sunday on her show about rising tensions in Ukraine. In our interview, we discussed her job moderating Face the Nation, asking tough questions of world leaders, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and how she got her start in journalism. Margaret, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm, I'm busy and juggling, but when am I not? Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I, you know, I appreciate it. So you're, you're uh, heading right after this interview to uh, a presser with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so I've been uh, up and reporting for a while, um, in addition to, you know, handling my show and, and kids, but that's life these days. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, so I should congratulate you, first of all, on a, on a pretty big milestone, because as of February, uh, you have been at the helm of Face the Nation for four years. Uh, how does that feel? I can't believe it's been four years. Um, in some ways, it feels like we've we've packed some decades, protect, particularly into the last two. <laughs> yeah. Um, just in terms of the volume of news, in terms of the historic nature of what we've covered, um, I, you know, if, if we already thought we were in the midst of a whirlwind when I, when I first was named moderator because it was the Trump administration that was coming out of a White House correspondent job covering them, and then the the pace just picked up from there. Um, so it's kind of like, it's incredible that it's been four years, but there has been so much in terms of the nation changing in that time that that's really what sounds me more than anything else. Right. I, I remember at the, towards the end of the Trump administration, I felt like every, a lot of journalists were just like a, kind of jaded about like the news. Yes. Like there could not be possibly be more insane news happening. And then January 6th happened. And yeah. it was like, oh my God, this could still get more nuts. Um, yeah. do, do you feel a change now between the Trump administration, dealing with the Trump administration and dealing with the Biden administration as moderator of Face the Nation? Is that a, has, has that been a huge shift in sort of how your, how your job works? It is a big shift. I mean, every administration sort of has its own um, personality, so to speak, their mm. approach to the press and their engagement with the Sunday programs in particular. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it has been different. I think both administrations have chosen to stay part of the conversation in terms of like engaging with us and making officials available on Sundays. Um, so they continue to recognize the importance of, of speaking on Sunday mornings to sort of set the, set the table for the week to come. Um, but it's, it is different. I mean, even just in looking at the pandemic and the messaging around it, the Biden administration has leaned heavily into, for example, uh, putting out the doctors um, first and foremost versus some of the more um, policy makers who who are also a huge part of the pandemic response, right? So, mm. you know, Dr. Fauci is a medical advisor to Dr. Biden, but in terms of making decisions on testing supplies and 
and um, you know masks and all those things. That's that's as he would tell you. That's not really his slice of the pie. And the Trump administration leaned less heavily on the doctors and more on the the, the policy advisors. Um, so we were almost like talking to different groups. And in mm. fact, for the Trump Trump administration, for eight months, would not put out Dr. Fauci on our program and um, and others. So you know, it, it's a it's a choice in communication. Um, and, and, you know, like we hardly hear from the Health and Human Services Secretary now, but Alex Azar under the Trump administration was constantly out on the Sunday shows um, trying to, to send the message that they thought they were ahead of the curve when, when we know the, the country has been trying to figure out how to respond to a pandemic now for almost three years. You know, we're in our third year of this. Right. And, you know, I'm, when it comes to interviewing these people, I'm, I'm fascinated by how you as a moderator prepare for a Sunday po politics show. So the, the audience sees one, one hour of it, but there's an enormous amount of preparation and process that goes on behind the scenes. Yes. What is that process like? I'm so glad you said that because there's this like <laughs> false impression somehow that like you just work on Sunday. <laughs> you, you rock no. up on Sunday morning and do this. Right, yeah. right. Um, but we have, a, a really talented team of like producers and researchers and um, uh, just such a talented booker. And all of us are putting our heads together throughout the week to decide, okay, what is the issue that matters by the time we get to Sunday and that matters for the country beyond that? And then within that issue, what do we need to know? You know, what are the, the what's the problem set here? You know, wh what are we honing in on? Um, where do we need to dig deeper? And that's the case for each guest. And often our guests are not on a single topic, right? Like last week, it was Ukraine, Russia. It was January 6th. It's COVID. Right. It's sort of state of the country and politics. So there are a lot, there's a lot of deep dive um, research files, time spent doing that. And I kind of cram for an exam. Of course, the, across the week, but really most intensely Friday and Saturday. Okay. Um, where my family really kind of doesn't see me, um, for, to be very honest with you, uh, for those days, because you have to understand what the issue is to know where to push. Um, because right. anyone can just like lob a question, but you, if you want to deliver information or pull out the heart of the issue or push it forward, you got to spend some time thinking about it and talking to experts. And that that takes a lot of prep work. Right. And particularly if the person that you're interviewing has appeared on the air, you know, in the days before or something, finding right. the new piece of information, I imagine is like a, a really important part of the job. Exactly. Um, so I, I was actually, I was watching Face the Nation last weekend and you had on the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and you were really relentlessly questioning him on Russia and the escalation in Ukraine. And it was, it was a great interview. Thank and you. it got me thinking, do you ever find it hard to ask tough questions or really confront a guest? And the, the reason I ask that is that I sometimes find it to be a little bit difficult. The stakes are, are far higher for you, of course, because I talk to media personalities, not secretaries of state dealing with diplomacy and war. But I find that sometimes I need to psych myself up before a tough right. interview because my impulse is to be agreeable, not confrontational or, you know, to really to really press someone. So do you feel that at all? I know what you're talking about because you also have to like 
you know, put on your, this is business. This is not personal. Right. right? Yeah. You know, this isn't something you would just sort of casually say at a cocktail party. <laughs> right? it's yeah. a completely different thing. Um, it's, you, you know, there's so much in, in, in your question that I could pull apart and, um, embedded in there that to respond to, but I'd say, you know, one of the things that I try to do is to spend some time thinking of the issue and to put myself in that person's position to go through kind of what their thinking is like, and to just deconstruct the argument they're trying to make or look for where the, the holes may be. Um, I mean, that's at its heart, being kind of an, an analyst is part of the journalist's job. And so I really focus there, but try to have it be, you know, based in fact and where we are rather than the quote unquote gotcha, or rather than just in your face to be in your face for the theater of it. Like, I don't think the audience gets much from that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't, it, it's trying to understand where they're trying to go and then explain to the audience where the holes may be, regardless of party. Um, and you can do that with policymakers. It's harder when someone then attacks you personally, right? Which is something that we saw happen a fair amount um, in, in the past few years. And for me, when I took, when I became a White House correspondent under the Trump administration, I, I saw that. I mean, it was very clear during the campaign that was um, a tactic, that's a device, because that's usually used to distract you from the content of what you are driving at, right? Mm. So I try to not take it personally. Um, right. So if I'm not taking it personally, they shouldn't take it personally. <laughs> it doesn't mean, I mean, I mean, obviously, it's not always the way people take things. People, right. people have hurts, of course, but um, that's how I, in my mind, psych myself up for things. Have you ever gotten like uh, one of your guests very annoyed by uh, oh, this questioning yeah. like you of hear course. about hear from them after that you get screamed at and stuff <laughs> I mean that's not something that we like to have happen right obviously. <laughs> um, and I think everyone on our show handles everyone with respect and I think when you show that that is often reciprocated mm. um when it's not that's that's a big warning sign right right um and I know everyone on the program um, who, who interacts with guests keeps that in mind. But of course, have I ticked people off in the course of my career? I wouldn't be doing my job if I hadn't. Um, and do we hear about it? It's more often than not, somebody calls one of my producers and complains than calls me and complains. But it's happened. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten those calls. Yeah. What struck me about the the Blinken interview is that you're obviously you're discussing really high stakes diplomacy. And in that kind of interview, do you ever fear that one of your questions and the response that it elicits could have serious real world consequences, right? That like Blinken could yeah. say something that could trigger, you know, something like an escalation or something like that. Does that cross your mind? Do you factor that in when you're asking these questions, when you're writing them? Yes. I mean, First of all, I, I know particularly with people in national security that they typically choose their words extremely carefully because of exactly what you're saying. Mm. They're not just speaking to the United States. They are very aware that the Kremlin is watching this right. that, you know, and Eve they're watching this. Um, so I know they're thinking that way. 
it's also in your phrasing, particularly when you're dealing with, and, and this, I mean, it makes me think of Attorney General Bill Barr, when I interviewed him, he was such a lawyer through and through, and he was looking for any word that I didn't use exactly correctly to find a way out of it. Right. So you do have to think a lot about phrasing. Sometimes when it's on the fly, it's not going to be perfect. Um, but I remember when I was a, a State Department correspondent and I was covering John Kerry and in the heat of the standoff in the, in the wake of that absolutely disgusting and devastating chemical weapons attack in Syria, um, knowing we were in the midst of high stakes diplomacy, we'd been on the road with him flying country to country as he tried to build up an alliance. And we'd been in Paris, we'd been in London and standing at a press conference in London, knowing one of my colleagues was in Damascus. Um, and, and also knowing that back at home, President Obama's coalition just wasn't there, that politically, domestically, he was having a hard time. Um, and maybe, you know, didn't want to push too hard on it. So it was interesting watching a Secretary of State deal with all that, right? Like he's, he's navigating politics at home, he's navigating the Russians and the Syrians, and then he's navigating what he wants to say and what he's pushing for. So they're all dealing with different stakeholders. And I asked that question of, was there any way out uh, to avoid conflict? And the way John Kerry answered that question created a diplomatic opening. I mean, John Kerry's written about this in his books um, after the fact, because I think at the time they tried to say it was planned. Um, and he, he explains that, that the way he chose to answer that question created an opening for Russia to say, let's take you up on that diplomatic offer. So it was kind of incredible to me to see that happen, but it was an answer to a question. Right. And, and so I, I don't know if it's as a result of that moment, but that moment does make me appreciate that much more that journalists have a job and trying to um, choose their words carefully matters as well. Mm. Now you have interviewed a, a pretty staggering number of world leaders as well from Erdogan to Boris Johnson, Macron, Netanyahu, I, I could go on. Is there a key to interviewing world leaders? Like, do you approach those interviews differently than, than you would others? Yes. I mean, they're, they're always different in that, you know, I'm approaching this as an American journalist for a U.S. television network. Mm. We always come at it from the American point of view in terms of where do we fit into the equation, right? Versus one of their own citizens would maybe approach things a little differently. Um, but I think you you know you know what you're sitting sitting down and going to get a lot of the time. When we sat down with Erdogan, and I worked closely with our State Department reporter Christina Ruffini and my producers on Face the Nation to prepare for that, and um, we knew he wasn't going to answer things directly. He speaks in this elliptical way that he was yeah. going to potentially be a little belligerent, um, and I was surprised that he was very calm once he sat in the chair mm. um i was sort of expecting him to you know want to tussle um so you you do prepare mentally for those things a little bit more you do your homework in terms of the policy um but you also have to be aware of the politics so in in that way it's, it's not that different of a craft from when you're interviewing um an american politician right 
but world leaders have a different weight to their policies than, than pundits, right? Than, than critics, than lawmakers who know their bills aren't gonna go anywhere. Um, so, so there is a different weight to the way they answer things. Speaking of, of American politicians, uh, there was a debate a few months ago among um, the, the sort of broadcast anchors about interviewing Republicans who had denied the results of the 2020 yes. election. And you host a, a lot of Republicans on your show. You had a, a contentious interview, uh, I think a few months ago with Ted Cruz on his role in, in challenging the election results. What's your position on how to deal with election deniers? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, this is a really, um, I have a few different answers for you on that. And there's kind of like the, the role each person played in that and exactly what how strong and how much they leaned in. There were a lot of Republicans who flirted with right. election Right, there are degrees to the denialism. <laughs> degrees to the denialism, exactly. Um, versus going out and just flat out lying, right? right? If someone's coming out and flat out lying, I, they are not going to be on the program, right? Mm. Um, unless, I can't even say, you know, what would change that. But in terms of, um, Republican leaders, you know, uh, who, um, like Mitch McConnell, like I, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think we've had Roy Blunt on, who's one of the top Republicans in leadership, who then as, you know, one of the heads of rules committee had to deal with security after January 6th, who pushed that night for, um, the certification to continue to happen, um, that person is part of Republican leadership. That person is part of the policy and decision-making for the party. I don't think um, blacking them out from the airwaves achieves anything. Mm. I think you have to push them, ask them, call out what is not true, just like we do, but you can't put a blanket no Republicans on the show policy because that doesn't help our country. Right. Um, and we do some pretty in-depth segments as we did, um, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, we had David Becker, our election specialist on to talk through, you know, what's happening state by state. Uh, we've talked to um, at the federal level lawmakers about this. Like we are going to continue to dig into what is happening at the state level with local legislatures who um, maybe compromising the integrity of their own elections while claiming to be buttressing it, right? We're gonna cover that and we're gonna talk to people about it. Uh, we're not gonna put on people who are spreading lies, but just because they come from a party that you know has the same three letters after it as the former president doesn't mean they believe everything in the same way. So I think you have to press people and pull things out of them in terms of what their role is here. That's how I guess I, I, I handle it. Um, right. So, you know, I flat out said to, to Senator Cruz, the part that like, you know that that's not true. And, you know, this intellectualized argument over mm. the Electoral College Count Act, which we're now seeing Republicans, by the way, and Democrats considering trying to update that law to clarify the things that this argument was based off of. Um, so 
you know, does, does talking about updating that law indulge the idea that there was wiggle room? No, I think mm. we can talk about it. Right. Uh, and I think we can call it out when, when someone's taking that too far. That's my approach. Okay. Now, I, I want to talk about the, the ratings of Face the Nation um, because it's consistently the top-rated Sunday morning show. It beats Meet the Press this week on ABC, Fox News Sunday. Why do you think, and I'm sorry to ask you such an annoying question, but why do you think the show has been so successful? <laughs> that is not an annoying question. Um, <laughs> no, I think what we have set as our mission in terms of focusing on the issues that matter to people affect their lives most directly, certainly during the pandemic, it was very clear. It was um, clarity on health policy. It was clarity from, you know, Dr. Scott Gottlieb sort of stepped into the breach on that one when we were getting very mixed messaging. He was very He's clear. been an unbelievable messenger throughout the pandemic. Really has. And right. to his credit, um, regardless of po policy, excuse me, regardless of party, right, um, has called it out as a doctor saying when the Trump administration was downplaying things, he called it out. Mm. When uh, the Biden administration he thought was making some policy mistakes, he's made some, some clear informed um, remarks. And I think, I think people, if, if, I think people's intelligence deserves some respect. And I think that's one of the things we do is we indulge that, that we have someone who is a doctor explain the science behind it, the research he did into it and why a decision was made rather than just like mask or no mask, where do you stand, right? right. Um, I think people are looking for that. I think that is a big um, factor, honestly. I think the same thing in when we were looking around at uh, states and cities, you know, mayors and governors became a good place for us to go to talk about how people were actually handling things in their own districts so that people at home could say, well, maybe my mayor should do that. Or, um, well, that didn't work there. Informing the electorate is the, is the baseline of, of what we we're supposed to be doing. And I think that we got back to those basics and that really helped. Now, the, the show changed in a major way last year. Uh, it's now called Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, um, yeah. which is a pretty incredible achievement. Uh, does that make it more daunting to moderate a show that's been on the air for, you know, 60, 66, 67 years? Um, I hadn't thought about it like that. You just said that. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, it's an incredible honor. Mm. Um, uh, I've always felt really responsible for what we do on air. Um, and I, you know, um, have spent a lot of stomach lining <laughs> over mm. the years, worrying about uh, how we approach things, preparing for things, talking through them. Um, so I, I do feel like I've, I've been personally very invested in this show and it's a reflection of that. Um, so that's sort of more how I think about it. Um, that's, that's that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, more yeah. positive way. Do, do you watch your competitors? Um, I do, uh, not start to finish completely, but you know we're on at ten thirty Eastern, so a lot of them are on before me. Most of them are on before me. Um, so I'll often, particularly if we have the same guests, watch watch them handle whoever it is. Like Secretary Blinken, for example, was on two other networks before mine. 
right. uh, before CBS last week. So, um, you know, that was a choice by the administration because they were trying to put out a single message. Um, and so, yeah, I tuned in to see, well, what's he going to say? I'm always curious as to whether the people that work for the big three networks keep an eye on cable news as well. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a very different beast. But um, yeah, I'm not sure you saw this, but uh, Tucker Carlson a couple of weeks ago uh, recently, he said that that he was talking about Alex Jones. He was complaining that Alex Jones was subpoenaed by the, the January 6th committee. And he said that that uh, Alex Jones is a much better journalist and better guide to reality than Ken Delanian of NBC News and uh, and Margaret Brennan of CBS News. Like when you when you get mentioned on cable news by someone like Tucker Carlson, I'm sure you know some of the Fox News primetime people have come after you at some point in the past couple of years. Do you pay attention to that? Does that bother you at all? I heard about it a few days later. I didn't know what right. had happened. Um, I laughed, to be honest. That was my response. <laughs> uh, does it bother me? No. Um, the, the, the statement does not bother me. <laughs> right. Yeah. It is a little um, bit absurd, the, the Alex Jones comparison. Yeah. It's, it's an easy one to laugh off. It is. And, and on a very serious note, um, given where I am from, given where I grew up, given the time I spent covering Sandy Hook, given the family members that I have who live still in Newtown and were first responders that day, I, just being a human and a mom, I take that very seriously when people reflect on Sandy Hook. So right. in my mind, if people make things up about a horrible tragedy and the massacre of children, that's just, I don't need to remark on that. Right. Now, uh, how did you get into the industry? Because from, from what I know, you didn't always plan on going into, into journalism. That's right. Um, I didn't really know or make a decision about trying out journalism until I was uh, at the tail end of my university career and I interned down at CNN one summer. Right. But you, you uh, studied something else in, in college, right? Right. Uh, well, at UVA at the time, there wasn't even a media program. They have one now. Okay. Um, but uh, I studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies. I was a double major and I minored in Arabic. So um, I chose to study the things that were of interest to me, um, and certainly in the news. <laughs> when is it? When have you ever remembered a time that the Middle East was not in the news? Right. Um, and wanting to know more about it. You know, I've always been fascinated by periods of change, periods of um, what makes people, um, you know, with social movements go from go from a protest to an armed rebellion, right? Like all those sort of if-then clauses of all the things that contribute to change in a society. Um, just because they happen overseas doesn't make them fundamentally different, right? It's usually a confluence of economic and social factors mixed, mixed with politics, mixed with things. And it's it occurs to me again and again, like that these political economy, there's a political economy class and these social change classes that the skill set of how to analyze things, or at least to see where warning signs are, um, I feel like I'm tapping into them more and more when talking about our own country. Mm. So oddly, you know, um, it, it's that background helped me in terms of covering the Middle East, obviously. But uh, I think in terms of thinking about periods of massive change in societies, uh, that 
I, f- I feel like I'm diagramming our society right now. Like I, c- I can see it in the blackboard and <laughs> in the classroom. Right. Um, so and, often. and your first beat was financial and business news, correct? Yes. Yes. How, how did you, you fall into that first? Um, it was, I spent um, spring break of my fourth year, which is what they call seniors at UVA, um, driving around, talking to other UVA grads who worked at news networks or local stations um, and reaching out to people I had applied to internships with at CNN and at CNBC and just trying to figure out like, if I'm going to try my hand at news, you know, how do I do it in a way that um, gets me a foot in the door, helps me build a skill set and learn about the business and, you know, that I'm actually going to like. Mm. Um, and the CNBC offer came to me. And at the time it was for this, you know, entry-level job as a researcher for Louis Rukeyser was this financial anchor who did a once a, once a week show. Um, and he'd had it on PBS for decades and had just come over to, to CNBC. And he had spent decades as a, as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East before he went into financial news. And my interview with him just ended up being about the Middle East and UVA. <laughs> and, um, you know, for me, I was like, I want to move back to the New York area. You know, I grew up in Connecticut in the, in the suburbs of New York. And um, I was like, let me figure out what it means to actually work in television. So it was in my mind on the job training mm. for a few years of just, you know, figuring out cutting video and taking calls at the news desk and what it's like to try to write a script. Like I didn't take that in school. I learned that. I right. learned that uh, on the job. And financial news, the thing that I ended up loving, and, and I was there at a critical time because it was kind of, what was it, 2002, 2003, you're in that post 9-11 corporate um, malfeasance sort of period. Remember Enron and WorldCom and all that. There was like a slew of news. Right. And so it did feel the center of the world, but I could still start to see global implications. And the more and more, once I, you know, I wasn't allowed to cover a lot of that stuff as a baby, um, <laughs> but in talking to people who invest, they're watching headlines around the world all the time. And that was fascinating to me. And that's how I started to see all my interest areas start to converge, that they needed to know, you know, the Wall Street needed to know K Street in Washington. They also needed to keep an eye on what's happening overseas because it all influences the global marketplace. And that's kind of how I found that path forward that kept me in financial news for that long. And then I was in the midst of the the financial crisis um, uh, when I had made that transition from being a producer to a reporter. And that was really um, informative to me. Now, I want to let you go uh, to this this presser, but I I do want to ask one last question just about the, the news cycle right now obviously we're, we're all in on covering Russia and Ukraine and the United States response to that. I I think it's, it's easy for, for news consumers to get lost in what's going on. Is there like, should people, should people be very worried about the the possibility of conflict now? Like what's the threat level at, at this point? The risk of military conflict is very high. I think one thing the public needs to understand is that the tanks aren't going to roll first. You are probably going to see a cyber attack. You're probably going to see some destabilization. You are going to see a conflict that may appear small or a small bite. And how 
people react, how countries react to each step in this can change the magnification of what it means for the rest of the world, right? So are we in a 1941 moment? Not necessarily, but are we in a moment where you can just write this off as a faraway land that doesn't matter to you? No. And to that point, you know, conflict and warfare and just the global community has changed so much that there's a reason Homeland Security is warning companies in this country that they could get hit by fallout from a cyber attack in Ukraine. Yeah. Because things like this don't stay confined. They will have global implications. They will have global implications for the, the president's credibility, for America's credibility. Um, you know, this president ran on a on an argument that America is back and ready to lead. Um, Maybe Vladimir Putin took that as a personal challenge. <laughs> um, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with us as Americans. But the, the global power balance matters. And I do truly believe we are in a period of massive change globally because all the tough stuff we've been through in, this, in the past two years or three years in this country, look at what's happened in the UK, look what's happened in other countries. They are also going through periods of massive change as well. And that kind of upheaval if I were mapping this out back in, at UEA, um, there are a lot of contributing factors here that make for a moment of, of high risk. All right, uh, Margaret Brennan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for making time and being flexible today. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Margaret Brennan on Mediate.com. 